Hello everyone, and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we meet Mike and Tim Rauch of Rauch Brothers Animation. So it's another Squiggly Podcast. Hello, Mr. Steve Henderson. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you very much, Mr. Ben Mitchell. How are you? I'm as chirpy as I can be in uh, what's been a pretty spectacularly depressing first month of 2016. Hopefully hopefully we can make it to the end of this podcast without someone wonderful dying. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it has been shocking, hasn't it? They're dropping like flies. Nothing like a chilling reminder of our own mortality yeah. to, and uh, the, to uh, start off a new year. Was it the 27 clubs steadily being replaced by the 69 club? Which is a slightly better club to be in. I mean, in the sense of, you know, longevity and the good innings. Absolutely. I thought you was going for something else there, Ben, but you know, let's let's move swiftly on. Wow. <laughs> and you served it up to me like a softball as well. I'm I'm ashamed of myself that I missed that. <laughs> ah well. So uh yes, yeah, so the last podcast that we put out into the world, I believe, was a couple of minutes before they announced the Oscar nominations. Were you satisfied with what we got in the end? Satisfied. Now, that's, a, that's a, a, a correct choice of word, I'll say, because it seems that for the first year in quite a while, the Oscars, uh, in terms of the animation selection, has matured, especially in the feature area. Would you agree? Like a fine cheese. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, less cheese this year, I would say. It's a little bit more kind of uh, a, a bit more of a mature selection. Yeah, so what did we get? We got Anomalisa. Mm-hmm. Boy in the World. Did you see that one? Uh, no, it's something. It, did you see it at Annecy? Either Annecy or London. Yeah, we had that but... on the site ages. You you did a review like back in June. I don't think I did. I think the someone did. Yeah, <laughs> I may as well just take credit for other people's work. Do it. Go for Let's it. Let's look it up. July twenty fourteen. So blimey! I guess it only got distribution in the last year, and that's why it's eligible. Yeah. And that was by Ben Pruden. Ah, right. Okay. Uh, lovely chap. And you're Ben Mitchell. Dif- yes, different Ben altogether. Right. You're the one with the beard. So if you're if you aren't uh, familiar with the boy in the world, there's a rather extensive uh, look at that film on uh, squiggly.com. Give it the old searcheroo. It is interesting. It's not like pretty much any feature film you know in the animation world uh, I've ever seen. It's like a lot of short films in the sense that it's quite bold in its design. Uh, a little bit of, perhaps, a, a sense of cartoon saloon, not in terms of similar style, but in terms of the um, the elaborate and very aesthetically pleasing background work for certain shots, mm. as we championed previously, was one of the... Uh, well, for me, it was one of the highlights of Song of the Sea, uh, as well as being a wonderful little story. Pretty much every shot had these gorgeous, glorious backgrounds. And... Boy in the World has some of that going on as well, used perhaps a little more sparingly. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty much, I think it's without dialogue, I think. Ah, okay. Um, and has an interesting kind of, you know, not very mainstream approach to its story. There's a little sort of full circle element to it. It's perhaps not an obvious choice for an Oscar nomination. Then, of course, we have films like... Inside Out. I think that was sort of a given, really. Blindingly obvious, really, isn't it? Sean the Sheep. That's good to see. Bit of uh, national representation there. Mm-hmm. And When Marnie Was There, which I have not seen myself. But uh, It's a good spread, I must say. Nice international cross-section. Absolutely, yeah. Um, nice mix of styles. I, I don't think I could complain much i mean i'm you know i'm good at complaining but that's why you have me <laughs> i'll i'll sniff out something to complain about before the podcast is through i'm sure okay good stuff <laughs> i'll set you off on it but uh, uh i'm really looking forward to seeing anomalisa yeah i saw an interview online recently with uh i think the puppet supervisor caroline kistelik mm-hmm. nice little <laughs> look at what to expect there uh in terms of the technical you know the technical stuff. Charlie Kaufman kind of exhausted me with uh, Synecdoche, New York. Hmm. Like I kind of, it's been, you know, seven years and I think I'm ready for another Charlie Kaufman film. <laughs> but that last one, oh God. <laughs> nice to see fun, that. Fun, fun, fun. Nice to see that particular brand washing up against the shores of animation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
against the good dinosaur and <laughs> and, and, and minions and, and the home and all these fun films. <laughs> that being said, the current leader of the Squiggly Readers poll of what film should win is Inside Out. Well. So, uh, followed by Shaun the Sheep. Mm. But, uh, you know, hey, time will tell. Time will tell. And uh, animation, short-wise, prologue, uh, We Can't Live Without Cosmos, World of Tomorrow was probably my favorite of that crop. Uh, it, yeah. just is, it just is funny, you know? I, I look, I'll, I've got to agree with you there. It's a, I mean, I've not seen prologue, unfortunately, so I can't really say so much about that. But it's very good. Well, I'll take your word for it. It's, <laughs> uh, it's unexpected. Like, it's, it's not the Richard Williams we think we know if we think we know him at all. A couple of films of these lists that I haven't actually seen, Sanjay's Super Team and Bear Story. I've seen Bear Story. What do you make of it? Moving on. Oh, dear. No, no, no. I, I, man, it's... Is it barely worth mention? Oh! <laughs> Am I going to do one of the easy chefs? That was a poor joke. <laughs> ah, very good. Oh, Christ. Sorry. What's become of us? <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> Not your cup of tea, do I gather? No, not, not, not my cup of tea. I laid it on a bit thick. It was a bit kind of... Be sad. Look. Right. Look at this bear. Be sad. I mean, historically, it's great for the director. Mm-hmm. But it's... I, I can't remember being affected by it. Do, do you know? Do you need to see where I'm coming from? It's, it's, yeah, it's, I, I think I, I understand what you mean. I, I certainly know that feeling of being legitimately affected by something that is trying perhaps not so hard. Mm-hmm. As soon as something tries hard to kind of grab your heartstrings, then your heartstrings develop a sort of resistance to it. Yeah. My heartstrings are like razor wire now, Ben. You try and tug <laughs> on these. I consider myself forewarned. <laughs> oh, what about uh, We Can't Live Without Cosmos? Could you not live without We Can't Live Without Cosmos, Ben? Well, there you go. There's an example of a film that I found quite poignant. Mm-hmm in a way that didn't sort of lay it on too thick. It was also very well animated. It's it's more a style that I, I'm fond of, I suppose. Could have been a little shorter. That's my only sort of criticism. But that's sort of my attitude about anything that's more than like a few minutes in the world of shorts. It is a director's prerogative to allow a film to breathe a little bit more if they want to. And certainly it didn't make the film unwatchable. I, I don't think anyone that I've seen the film with has ever been disappointed by it or thought it wasn't a good piece of work. I think a lot of people found it quite nice Mm. Um, and and funny as well. If you temper that sort of emotion with with humor and good animation and good storytelling and everything else, the kinds of things I think that set up a close friendship uh, as this film does, you know, with legitimate sort of humor with them kind of, you know, f***ing around and getting in trouble and, you know, being like sort of little boys a bit at the beginning and then if they don't have that kind of humor established then later on in the film when as events transpire it wouldn't be as affecting i don't think absolutely so i enjoyed that film as the the capsule version of that yeah yeah it's going to be interesting so who who do you think is going to win then historically speaking i suppose sanjay's super team would be a safe bet mm-hmm. my hope would be for either world of tomorrow or cosmos and I have nothing against Prologue. I think it's a very fine piece of work, but I feel it's a tile in a bigger mosaic, perhaps. Right. And I think that maybe for what it is, which is, a, a I believe, a segment or a prologue, I suppose, to something bigger, it's more the something bigger, I think, is what we really need to strap in for, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I think he's got a lot more in store for us. And so Prologue's perhaps a little bit of a teaser into that world. He's going down the Phil Tippett route, isn't he? He's making bit by bit, this big, long film. I mean, that's pretty much how uh, It's Such a Beautiful Day happen. when you think about it. It's, it's you know, three short films over time, slap them together, and, you know, it's actually very watchable as, like, a solid hour uh, feature, I found. Good. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, where it goes. I hope, you know, hopefully we'll see that's, uh, you know, it's not the last we'll see of this uh, particular film. So Sanjay Super Team, I didn't see. What Did you see that one? No, no, I've not seen it. it. Was it played before The Good Dinosaur? I think it might may well have been. I've not seen The Good Dinosaur yet. I know I said I was going to go see it, but I've not seen it. Well, I've heard that Pixar did a kind of swap there. So with Inside Out, it was an absolutely shocking short film beforehand and a great 
uh, feature film and right. with The Good Dinosaur, people have said that the short film before was fantastic and the film was pretty meh. So the super team itself, it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, the super best friends. Do you remember that? <laughs> From South Park. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, I, didn't, I don't know how relevant people find South Park now or certainly kids. I talked to people who were only like five, six, seven years younger than me and South Park is like this thing old people watch. <laughs> it was funny, damn it. Yeah. It's like when we were kids and our, our granddad talked about the Flintstones. I have to say, though, did you see the last season of South Park? Uh, no. Pretty good. Hmm? It's, it's a very different approach they're taking nowadays. It was a very necessary exercise. Basically, it was an assault on this pernicious quality political correctness has taken on, uh, especially in the States. Hmm. And the the entitlement it generates and how people feel like they're constantly owed an apology for anything that ruffles their feathers over matters either incredibly socially important or incredibly trivial or that just happens to offend one person's sensibilities. Hmm. And it's the only thing I've seen on American television, uh, certainly in any kind of sitcom, that actually has the goal to take certain things to task that you, you simply cannot uh, say a bad thing about. Mm. And that, to me, was what South Park was always about when it was in its absolute, you know, heyday. So that was quite nice to see. Whether or not it's as funny, it's sort of debatable. I was just mainly sort of watching it just very grateful. Because you start to wonder, are you, am I actually crazy? Or is everyone being f***ing babies? Right. And so at least, at least there's a couple of other people who agree that maybe we need to calm the f*** down a bit. Mm. I'll have to I'll have to reinvestigate, but I do remember. I mean, it's probably the last two seasons I've not seen, but I do remember every single South Park episode I've seen. There's at least one thing, one joke, one sentence, one something in it that I will audibly laugh out loud. Sometimes to the point where you're coughing up phlegm. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. that you know that kind of raw, roaring laughter. So that was kind of a uh, a nice thing to see because I'm finding myself increasingly underwhelmed with um, adult animation. And I don't know if it's like, is it time to just give up on it? Like, maybe, maybe we're just done with it. Nah. <laughs> what's uh, what's ringing your bell in that uh, in that area? In adult animation. Yeah. How do you mean? Is there anything you can think of as to why I shouldn't give up on it as an idea? Oh God, there's a task. <laughs> um, I've only seen little glimpses of Border Town. Border Town. I've not seen Border Town, Ben, but I've. Uh, I, I would suggest you uh, maybe steer clear of that. Uh, the the go to for me is Rick and Morty at the moment. You know. Well, I think my process of elimination when time next presents itself, I'll give that a good chunk of uh, viewing time. Basically, it's if it comes up on my Netflix feed, hmm. like if something's right in front of me and I can just press a button and I'm watching it, then I'll give it a go, I guess. And that uh, that laziness, I have been punished for. Have you watched Archer um, yet? Uh, yeah, I gave Archer a go. It was all right. Yeah. I like it. I think it's something that you've got to get into, though. Like, you, you know what I mean? You don't have to get into it, obviously, but once you, it rewards for watching. There's another one that I kind of... I don't know if you encountered this one uh, on Netflix. F for Family. Okay. And I gave that the old college try, because um, the guy behind it is a guy I really am a big fan of. He's called Bill Burr. Mm. And I found it quite watchable when I wasn't looking at it. You know, I could be doing other things and listen to some of some of the sort of dialogue and the rants and stuff, because he's like one of those ranty comedians. And uh, I don't know why I'd like that. Uh, (laughs) And uh, but it looks just the look of it. I don't know. Google image search it at one point. I think, you know, a picture says a thousand words. F is for family. It's time for a live reaction. Uh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> basically what is it is it like the goldbergs or something is it supposed to, is it set in the 80s uh the 70s I think. 70s right okay there are nice little moments in it but more in terms of like the script i guess and you know it's like family values another one of those shows it's odd isn't it they, they go for this kind of family dynamic as if it's that's the only thing you can do with a series why? Yeah. But why? Why do we necessarily need a family unit to relate and to engage with this with this series? Why do they always just think that a family has to be at the forefront of of animated sitcoms? 
I suppose it's something that sort of helps its appeal to middle America and what could conceivably be, you know, their perception of family values being something they can relate to uh, or something that legitimizes it more as something for a family audience rather than... Because something like Rick and Morty, which by all accounts is a much sort of more adventurous show uh, story-wise, because it is an adventure predicated and uh, based on sci-fi concepts, I assume, and mm. uh, interdimension, stuff that is perhaps more associated with a children's show, the average sort of fox-watching adult will probably be a little reluctant to dip their toe in those waters. I think that's possibly why Futurama floundered in terms of while it always had, as far as I was aware, a very strong critical reception, it was never the ratings grabber the network wanted it to be. Hmm. Possibly because people looked at it and you know couldn't see past its sort of surface of spaceships and robots to what was some real like ingenuity and wit. Is it that's an interesting one? Mark Groening's uh, I mean, the news. I don't, I don't know if you can call it news because there's no actual news about it. It's just, yeah. <laughs> the Hollywood Reporter said that Matt Groening's doing a new series. I mean, we didn't even think it was right for a squiggly article. So, you know, just make of that what you will. Um, we'll wait until there's some actual facts. But he didn't rely on that kind of family thing that everyone's still clamoring for when he went to do Futurama. No, he moved on and 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 did this kind of work uh, dynamic, and I'm interested to see what he'll come up with next. Uh, when he did Future Armor, I think people asked him what he was going to do next, and I remember in some of the interviews from well, 16 years ago, I don't know why, but it's still in my head. But he said something about making a series about rock stars. You know, I think he wanted to do a Spinal Tap series, basically. Yeah, that'd be interesting. But that was that was such a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> like. Maybe that idea would have worked. It could work now, but mm. I find him a very confusing figure as far as his attitude about The Simpsons and all sorts of things. Like, really, from like the first couple of seasons in, I don't really think he had much of a real stamp on it. Yeah. But, you know, he's he certainly, whatever deal he signed, <laughs> he, he signed the right kind. It's uh, so yeah. It's, it's it's kind of interesting for what animation has, what animation's got coming up. Uh, we're kind of stuck in award season fog and stuff. But the thing I've really been enjoying recently is uh, a series of books which I've put a, a review up online. Is the uh, Gianna Alberto uh, Bendazi series? Um, now I believe you have cartoons. His earlier book, Ben. Mm. Uh, well, these are a brand new set um, where he takes the three what he called the three eras of animation and he's, uh, well, three volumes of the book and he's got these these eras of animation which he kind of puts into uh, segments and events and stuff. And it's a, it's a fascinating read. It's a great sort of look at animation history and stuff. And available now for the low, low price of? Something like £244, which is a little bit baffling. Um, but I, as I said in my article, uh, I do sort of really think that any kind of animation animation university course or college course or anyone who has access to a library or somebody who can actually afford or a studio perhaps who can afford to sort of spend money on books for the benefit of their uh, students or staff that they should really invest in the books they're a great um, look at animation history i would imagine that was perhaps the the marketing intent a bit like the richard williams dvd set that went for a premium mm. and probably with the idea of it being picked up by universities for their libraries as i'm sure many universities did and so yeah it's it's certain so it's a valuable uh repository of animation history you would say yeah absolutely i think do they mention squiggly uh i've not got through to that yet but i'm sure that volume three uh mentions squiggly I- extensively animation the squiggly <laughs> 2004 onwards things were looking bleak and then on the horizon came ben and steve <laughs> With Zoom mics and awkward tripods. <laughs> Those two renegades come onto the scene. So also on the site uh, this week, people may have noticed there's an interview with uh, George Sander Jackson and several other filmmakers who put together this project for Mosaic Films, uh, the Animated Minds Project. And this is a series of uh, sort of animation documentaries, little shorts about the not especially cheery, but quite uh, interesting and uh, useful subject of dealing with postnatal depression. Animation, perhaps not the most sort of obvious choice 
for making a film like that. But certainly something that animation documentaries are very good for is conveying concepts in a way that live-action documentaries would struggle to. You have a lot more um, freedom for abstraction, uh, freedom for visual interpretation. That's why I think in a lot of like successful live-action documentaries, there will be a sort of animated component to help the viewer along, or just even make it a little more visually interesting than you know a standard sort of talking head deal. Mm. And sometimes that can add a lot of weight to a documentary. Uh, these are all animations set to a series of interviews. I think they're all about an hour long and then cut down to these uh, five-minute pieces of audio and then uh, given out to various animation directors. So if you have a look at that article, you can hear some perspectives from some of the filmmakers behind that. Uh, And it brings to mind another project that went on for quite a few years. And this is one that I'm not sure if we ever talked about before. It's sort of wrapped up in the sense that well not wrapped up it's ongoing Mm. but it's changed hands in the sense of the the animation team behind it but for a long time it was produced by the rouch brothers uh mike and tim rouch of rouch brothers animation for the series story core these are sort of similar in the sense that they're sort of set to interview audio but it's more the oral history end of the spectrum yeah, something that kind of takes its inspiration, I think, from the pioneers of that particular. I don't know if you'd call it a genre. People like Studs Turkle, people who are kind of known as like oral historians, going around the country painting a sort of portrait, I suppose, of America or wherever in quite a compelling way. They certainly taken a leaf out of that book, and so StoryCorps, the project, it's sort of an offshoot of NPR. Uh, a radio series. It started off as a sort of independent series of animations. I think it was an excuse to get some uh, independent shorts put together and, you know, get some experience under their belts. And it grew and grew, and then it uh, it became something that uh, involved a lot of quite prominent animation artists and just very interesting viewing, I found. I recently sort of made my way through all of them for a, uh, a, a separate project that had a bit of a focus on you know, this kind of animation filmmaking. And what's interesting is that you'll see if you look at these PND animations, the ones that Mosaic did, they're a lot more abstract, they're a lot more interpretative, and there's a certain design style to them that perhaps is a little more expected. What the Rouch Brothers did with these stories, and some of them are quite, like, emotionally charged stories, they imbued them with a very traditionally cartoonish sensibility, which is perhaps not what one would expect. To me, it kind of drew attention to the idea of like, well, do people perhaps when they're dealing with certain types of subject matter, do they feel compelled to take it away from that cartoon look? Do they feel like it doesn't make, you know, for, for a good bedfellow? So they have some interesting thoughts on that. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll hear from them in a minute. I think it kind of improves. I don't know if we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but one of the best people I think talks about this is um, Scott McLeod in his, in his book, Understanding Comics. And he talks about how we can uh, how we project ourselves onto caricature mm. and i think in this respect especially the uh, stuff that the rouch brothers have done these um uh, story core animations uh i think it works incredibly well the stories themselves are absolutely wonderful that um in well, wonderful in a bizarre way i mean there's a for there's a gentleman who talks about um killing somebody uh, when he was in the in the uh, the Battle of the Bulge, uh, shooting this German officer, and I got the same kind of emotional response from that as I did about the the, the story about two bin men who had retired and wanted to go back to to being on the bins again. So they're wonderfully edited and wonderfully put together, and uh, just just really nicely done. And and like I say, it doesn't matter if the story is about war or or prejudice or you know just a story about you know two blokes working. They're just really well nicely put together and the uh, the designs really elevate them certainly i think that it goes back a little to what uh, we were talking about earlier about the having an element of levity whether it be a visual element or you know taking certain parts of the interview that are a little more sort of humorous mm. to really kind of imbue the characters as depicted with real humanity then the emotional element has so much more weight to it and at that point, it doesn't matter what it looks like, but it's almost more affecting, as you say, when it's it's something that you'd perhaps associate more with a traditionally animated cartoon show. Yeah. And it's nice to see that version of animation, that section of the animation world, someone going to bat for it, I suppose. 
and using it in a way that this isn't something that only has one dimension to it. This is something that, uh, you know, there's one in particular, it's called Danny and Annie. Mm. And it's, um, it's an old couple just reminiscing basically. And I thought that was absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And, uh, it has some artists that I've, I've been a fan of for years. A lot of the story Corps films, I think pretty much all the ones that they've worked on are on their website and they've moved on now. They've, that chapter of their professional life has concluded. But I thought it was worth bringing it up because these are films that I've been quite enamored of for a while. And uh, yeah, I was reminded of that with um, these shorts that George has done. It's an interesting sort of juxtaposition of similar approaches to making animated short films on paper mm-hmm. and very, very disparate executions. So yeah, let's, uh, let's hear from Mike and Tim Rauch a little bit about their history the studio, what they're going to be up to in the future, and working with StoryCorps. We've worked together since we were kids. I mean, grade school. We shared almost every job through life until college, it seems like. We, we did a paper out together. Uh, we worked at a restaurant together. We did lifeguarding together, taught swimming lessons together. So we, we had like a long history of working together. And we used to always, especially in grade school and middle school, I want to say, work on creative stuff together too like I think the earliest thing I can remember is writing up we have a big family we have four brothers and sisters in addition to the two of us so six kids so we 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 made up like a family newspaper as kids you know and I had like comics in there and stories about you know the the one-on-one basketball games of the week or whatever so I think it was sort of in some sense destined that we would spend some time working together as adults so now that you are adults and you're working together, is there a sort of particular division of labor? Yeah, Mike tends to deal with the producer side of things. And then I, uh, Tim, I tend to do the actual drawing. And then we kind of share directing duties in a sense uh, on most projects. Project. Some projects, it's going yeah. to be definitely all Tim is, yeah. is really directing or somebody else altogether outside the two of us you know we take definitely take on projects where somebody else is is much more the one directing and there's parts of the process like mike tends to get more involved with color mike tends to get more involved with anything that involves design on a higher level certainly there's a nice sort of identifiable style to your the direction of your work even when you're bringing on sort of external artists but uh, i guess one of the more sort of prominent projects that you guys have been working on has been StoryCorps. And um, that went on for quite a while, hasn't it? It's been like sort of nearly 10 years or more. Yeah. The very first one before we were kind of doing it as, you know, the way it started was we were doing them as just independent shorts. Mm -hmm. We did one short every year for three years. So that started in 2007 was when we began the very work on the very first short. Mm -hmm. And we just wrapped up on that project a year ago. So we've passed the baton on, they've uh, brought on a new team directing new shorts for them. Mm-hmm. And at least just, you know, for the foreseeable future, we won't be making any new StoryCorps shorts. We did, I think, about 27 mm-hmm. over, the real production run was like 2010 to 2014. We started in like February of 2010 and finished up in October of 2014 with them. So the subject matter or the, the source audio that came from was it NPR. Right. So StoryCorps is a it's their stories air on NPR, National Public Radio here in the United States, but they actually are an independent nonprofit based in Brooklyn, New York, which is where we were based until a year ago. Mm-hmm. We just moved to LA a year ago. So I, I actually worked with them initially as first an intern and then what they call a facilitator, which is in some way, sort of like a field producer, you'd almost say, I guess, you know, it's the person out there recording the interviews, asking questions and things to get the best story on tape and give them the best shot at having something that they can then produce as a radio piece. But also, every single story with the participant's permission does get archived at the Library of Congress Hmm. here again in the United States. So it's sort of a collection of just oral histories of everyday people. Mm-hmm. So the main production run that you mentioned being that sort of four or five year period, did that sort of mark a shift perhaps in it no longer being as independent or was it always, did you always consider it an independent thing from start to finish? Uh, that was I think definitely. It definitely <laughs> was different during that period. I mean, before that we were doing it without funding for about three years before that, mm-hmm. um, doing some of the shorts. And, um, you know, I think 
it's it's always true that once there's um, money involved, more people, especially the people providing the money, are going to have input. Mm-hmm. And so it, it does change things. That's sort of part of why that relationship ended was it started off as something that our energy was super high for doing it. And part of that was because uh, we really um, had control of creatively what was what we were going to do with it. And uh, over time, I think you just get to a point where you've done a project long enough and it's time to move on. But also where creatively you go, you know, um, if I were to keep, keep doing it, I would be doing this differently. And that's not what they want. So um, I don't think this relationship should continue. And that's sort of what it reached. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's things that we'd love to have had the opportunity to explore over the years with that series. Just simple things like being able to try, you know, it was always just a voice track. We'd have music in and music out, but then just the voice. And I think we were always interested in the possibility of trying things like, can we have some sound design in there? Could we use music to set tone or mood? And I think from a point of view of budget, as well as I think just like a creative direction that they wanted to go with it, that was stuff that they never wanted to do, which is, you know, that's fine. And so we're going to get that. We, we made it work with that kind of approach. And, but I think that eventually after you've done that for four or five years, and that's like the bulk of the work that we were doing in that time period, it's really a good opportunity. It was amazing, amazing opportunity to, to make all those shorts with them on so many levels. And we're so thankful to have done it. But then there's those new vistas you want to be able to explore creatively, which you know, if you kind of keep doing the same thing, you know, you're not necessarily going to have that chance. Were there, what were the sort of like main, I guess, advantages of say when you were doing it more on your own? You, you can do whatever you want when, uh, <laughs> when you're in charge. So, um, but you know, that was a long time ago. I think, you know, certainly that's true. You have total control, but once you have money, you have the ability to hire somebody like Bill Ray to do the backgrounds mm-hmm. and you have ability to hire people like Steven Stefano and Rafael Rosado to deal with storyboards and things like that. So, And even um, I feel like the, the quality of our character design vastly improved mm-hmm. once we did have money and a team uh, to be able to produce these things that Steven Stefano, for instance, was never hired as a character designer. Mm. But the quality of the designs that were in yeah. his storyboards before we had even established an idea about a character design for a given episode was so strong that oftentimes it heavily influenced what was done for the character design. Yeah, so that yeah. thing, I think that, you know, benefit doing it on your own, you you know, you can choose your story, you can choose your approach to animation and direction and all those things, but you also are much more on your own and you don't have the all the benefits that come with a larger team and what can be accomplished in that context. So, yeah, you know, before we did StoryCorps, uh, this is Tim speaking, I worked in animation very briefly. I, I worked on a preschool television show called uh, The Wonder Pets, which is all sort of cut up photographs as, as a design approach. And I worked on um, Ugly Americans at Augenblick Animation, but just very briefly for like maybe a month or two. So very low on professional experience, honestly, when we started StoryCorps. And um, having people like Steven and Bill on the team was huge. Because hmm. as Mike said, character design, I think, took a big leap forward when Steven got involved. And then having Bill, you know, Bill doing backgrounds, that was, you know, it was the first position we knew. Okay, if we have money, you know what we're going to do is we're going to hire somebody else to do those. And over the years, um, I feel like I've learned so much just through observing Bill's work and yeah. seeing how he handles simplicity and creating focus and tension and using color so it's been invaluable to have that money and it, it people will complain oh you know um, I don't have the creative control I had before and that's true but you also learn and grow as an artist through every experience that you have mm-hmm. there's always advantages to everything if you embrace it fully so one thing I will say that is true was that I think in part because of the way that that group of shorts started which was, you know, independently, again, three for three years, we, we made those shorts on our own time, on our own dime. Um, we kind of had an agreement with StoryCorps where we co-owned the final, you know, they owned the audio, we owned the picture, and we jointly owned the shorts that were produced in that time period. And um, I think that the fact that we had something established about an approach for these, even though it evolved after that, 
put us in a different place than we would have been if this was, I mean, first of all, I don't think that, this, that it would have happened as a series of shorts without having done those independent ones first. Uh, I don't think we could have walked in the room and pitched that idea and they would all say, oh, that's great, let's get money and let's go, you know, make this as a series. But also I think that we did have a certain level of creative freedom in producing them that we wouldn't have had if it had come to life through just like a pitch to StoryCorps. Mm. I think that we kind of had proven something about our vision and our approach to doing them previous to it becoming f a funded series that gave a certain amount of trust and certain amount of freedom for us in producing them. Mm. So it's always a give and take. Certainly one of the other things that, as you were just sort of discussing, that really kind of helped with the overall um, impact, I suppose, of the shorts was the presence of people like Bill and Stephen. And did you have them in mind at all, or was that something, did you kind of scout for people who'd be a good fit, or were they just kind of always people that you wanted to work with? Oh, totally. Mm. No, we, when we started looking for background artists, a lot of people gave Mike the advice, oh, you should get a recent college grad with a lot of talent. You'll be able to really tell him what it is you want. You'll be able to direct him really easily. and Be able to pay him less. <laughs> right. You'll get, you have all these advantages. So we had a couple people or one particular person on board, and the time came to get going on the series, and he was getting ready to go take a vacation for like two months or something. And it was kind of like, oh, well, that's not going to work. We've got to get started right away. And I had a moment of sheer panic, which I learned, you know, that was a great first experience to start out with, like, week one, sheer panic, and realize that that's just production. And you just have to learn to roll with the punches. But so I said, what am I going to do? Well, what we would have done when we hired this person would have been to specifically show him lots of Bill Ray's work and say, you know, <laughs> here's about this guy's work, here's what we kind of want to carry over into this series. And so I said, well, what the heck, you know, what I have to lose at this point, I've got no, nobody else on deck, might as well, like, shoot for the stars and do this thing that seems impossible, which is get Bill, you know, onto this production. It just so happened that Amit Amiti was my neighbor, he lived above me in the apartment building that I was in. And I knew that he had some past history with Spumco. I didn't really know what it was. And I just asked him, like, hey, do you have Bill Ray's contact? And actually, Jim Smith as well. Um, was he, Jim Smith worked on a few of the early episodes as a um, layout artist. Mm -hmm. And so Amit said, yep, yeah, sure enough, he had their contact. And I emailed both of them. And they called me back within an hour and agreed to come on to the project. So um, that was a pretty huge surprise to me. I remember kind of just literally pacing in circles in my apartment or almost maybe running and jumping up and down like, what the heck just happened? These guys are going to work with us? And it was, again, it was just like a lesson of like, don't short sell yourself on, you know, on your vision creatively of what you want to do or who you want on your team. And you might as well just go for it instead of telling yourself that it's not going to work out. Bill Ray, there's quite a few things of his that I, I keep tabs on what he does, and there are lots of like ideas that get sort of started and then maybe don't get the funding or the circumstances don't line up, and it would be wonderful if something you know that really had his stamp on it kind of made it to like mainstream visibility, because I've always been very fond of that frenetic energy he's had. Oh, yeah. But it's, it's quite rarely glimpsed, like just sort of in the odd episode of a show here and there. Right. The Mighty Bee, I think, was the, the last show that really had his mm. mark on it in a big way. <clears throat> so, um, looking back, are there any sort of favorite films or films that you consider perhaps the most successfully realized of StoryCorps? For me, I'd say Miss Divine was an early one that really came off the way we wanted it to and really showed like that. That is Primo Bill Ray right there. It's a piece about a kid with a Sunday school, uh, his memories of two cousins actually having a memories of a Sunday school teacher. And each scene kind of had a different mood because of what Bill had done. Um, and then it was there's a unique one in the group that we've done too, in that it was very much a humorous story. Where right. so many of the other ones, there may be humor in there, but there are also probably some very heavy side of the story at the same time, or heavier side. And I think that was mm -hmm. a really nice opportunity for us to just do something that was entertaining and humorous and it had a strong character at the heart of it i think that was another thing that really made that story work and for any other stories that worked in the series as a whole i feel like 
to me, the strongest ones were always ones where there was a very interesting, unique character at the heart of the story. And I think that's another reason for us where we started to feel like it was the right time to move on to doing other things because it seemed pretty clear like the StoryCorps was first interested in telling certain stories and we were really interested in first finding a great character mm. that hopefully had a great story to tell. So I think, what other ones would you highlight, Tim, besides Miss Divine? Uh, I would highlight, you know, the 9-11 series. We did three 9-11 pieces, but specifically from that, uh, John and Joe, um, you know, again, going back to, like Mike said, most of these are, tend to be pretty heavy. Well, that one's very heavy. So that one was a, a firefighter and a cop who both died on 9-11 and their father, a uh, former firefighter, telling the story. I think, again, Bill did some really evocative work with the with the background design painting. And um, I just I think that piece came off really, really well. And um, has, again, you know, hopefully a little bit of humor at the top, just a little bit. Um, and, you know, as New Yorkers, it meant a lot to us to be able to do those stories and get to know more about that event and the people who, who lived through it. In an interview on your site, there's a short interview where you mention Abman's work in nonfiction animation being an important reference point. Yeah. Which made me sort of my ears prick up because it's not something I would assume they'd be known for over in the States, because a lot of that stuff is quite a bit outside of their sort of mainstream, you know, exports. Mm -hmm. And I'm sort of curious as to how you came across those old films and how much of an influence they were in the end. Giant influences. Uh -huh. So we grew up in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is a little college town. And one of the great advantages of a Midwest college town is they usually have a slightly more culturally savvy uh, populace, mm -hmm. let's put it that way. So, so we were able to find Ardman stuff uh, DVDs at the mall. Um, somehow we got our hands on animation uh, magazines. I think we, we had animation magazine and ordered who knows why exactly a couple of v VHSs out of the back of it. One of which was a uh, Pixar shorts and the other was Ardman shorts. And the Ardman VHS had War Story, Creature Comforts, Going Equipped, Ident. What else was on there, Tim? Uh, the Shakespeare one? Uh, next. Yeah, we would have wore that tape out. Um, you know, the first two pieces on it were uh, Going Equipped and Creature Comforts. And um, Creature Comforts, you know, everybody loves that. It's hilarious, and that was wonderful. And then I also really responded to, we really responded to Going Equipped. It blew my mind as a kid that, that you could do something like that with the animation. And I really, you know, wanted to do that ever since. So now that it's wrapped up, it'd be good to maybe chat a bit about what you're up to now and or perhaps what you were sort of up to sort of concurrently. Yeah. So uh, while we were doing StoryCorps, because it was sort of both personal and client work, it tended to be pretty all-consuming. And uh, the little gaps in production that did exist were frankly necessary for a little bit of recuperation. And then, you know, I felt like I'd always need a couple of weeks away. And by the time I was ready to get back to drawing anything, it would be time to do StoryCorps again. So it's been great. Um, since then, you know, we've, we've done a lot of different kind of client work. Um, we worked uh, on, a, on a Nick short called Planet Claire and really threw our maximum effort into that. It was, a, in some ways, our biggest working relationship yet with one of the major networks. So we really wanted to put something special in on our end when we were handling the animation and design. Mike has probably a better, clearer picture of, of all the different client work we've done. But we also, I've, I've wanted for a long time, there's been some stuff that I've been working with that's kind of kids' uh, life um, where you really enter the mind of the kid in a big way and how they experience the dramas, the various dramas of life. So that project for me is called Mushroom Park. Mm -hmm. And I've been pretty aggressively trying to write it for about a year now where originally I said, I want to do a feature, which was sort of a fool's errand, but it was a fool's errand that was necessary at the time because having been worn down towards the end of our, our process with StoryCorps, I needed something big to reignite my engines, you know, because I, I would reach a point towards the end where I just didn't even know if I wanted to draw anymore, let alone animate. And um, having that large goal to refocus me and say let's let's do this impossible dream and then you know another advantage to having the ambition to do 90 minutes is you have to create a lot of material so when it comes time to throw stuff out and bring it back 
uh, you've got a lot to pick from and look at and go, you know, what themes in here are really what's of value to me and what little scenes that I've worked up with these characters can be put back together and help tell that story and help tell those themes. Um, and so now I've gotten to a point where what I really think I'm writing is about a half hour short. So it's still pretty long short, but it's, it's a story of a friendship between two little boys and they encounter some real difficulties and they've got to figure out how to maintain their friendship and maintain their relationship through the challenges. So people will hear that and, and, and ask me, is that about you and Mike? And uh, <laughs> I think it's pretty clearly going to be affected by that relationship. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely feel um, like I see our relationship in the, a lot of the uh, things that I don't know if, you know, the end story is going to mm -hmm. be there exactly the same way. But a lot of like the early writing and some uh, ideas and little scenes, you know, definitely recognize our relationship in there. Even like just our relationship 20 whatever years ago <laughs> as younger kids, you know, the brother dynamic that, you know, can both be really really uh, nice and can be brutal at the same time. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's the tension between, you know, for instance, it's the tension between the characters where one is sort of protective of the other and and then where is that, where is that a beneficial thing and when does that go too far? Yeah, I just different things. And, you know, people, people will also, I think, maybe look at it and go, which one is you and which one is Mike? And I don't think of it that way. I think in reality... There's aspects of both of us and both of them, and in in a lot of ways, you know, I think that's human relationships, and that's a big thing of what's important to me about the work we do with StoryCorps, and what I want to do with Mushroom Park is really show how human relationships work, and so I'm I'm working really hard to write that right now. I'm getting hopefully to the end. Um, Mike's been a great editor and a great uh, producer because uh, I'll get to the end. I'll say I've got it. This is a great result. Take it to Mike, and Mike, Mike will go ahead and blow holes in it, and um, I've got to pick up the pieces and try to put it back together and, and get something stronger. So it's been great, and I, I am looking forward to continuing on with that project. So that was Mike and Tim Rouch of Rouch Brothers Animation. You can check out their work at rouchbrothers.com. So one of the best things about this podcast has always been for us the interaction with the Squiggly community, and it sort of changed... Uh, shape over the years when we began there was i think a lot more kind of direct twitter interaction and twitter sort of adapted to something sort of different over the years we still obviously enjoy discussing things with people over twitter so feel free to give us a shout on there but uh, of course you can always give us an email ben at squiggly.co.uk or steve at squiggly.co.uk and we're always interested to hear any site feedback or podcast feedback or whatnot and I found that it's been the best thing for determining the overall structure of the podcast itself has been hearing from people. And, you know, we've had some people get in touch in the past. Maybe we haven't sort of solicited it as much of late. No. But uh, that doesn't mean that we're not interested in hearing from you guys. So um, Mike Farm's been in touch. Love listening to this podcast just as much as listening to the outtake special at the end of 2015. Love the Don Bluth and Gary Goldman interview. Though I'm gutted because when uh, they were on Kickstarter and I had funds to put into a project, I donated to them. Then, when it had to be cancelled and moved to Indiegogo, as much as it pleased me that they had gotten more donations from the public, I was broke. Miserable face. Uh, the problems of an artist, eh? I think we've all been there, Ben. Mm -hmm. The land before time, my num... Hang on, he said this in capitals. The land before time, my number one film to watch when I'm feeling down and uninspired. Uh, it always perks me up, and the drama encouraged me to think of ways to make a story interesting and the character's journey. Hmm. Well, that's from Mike. Thanks for getting in touch, Mike. Yeah, and it's Devil's Advocate. Mike, but if you um, if you had funds to donate to them before, but then later on you were broke, it's probably better off that you didn't give them money because then you would have been a lot more broke later on. I'm just saying, financial advice. We, we, this is this could turn into a bit of an agony ant section of the, of the <laughs> podcast, Ben. I mean, I'm just saying, like you know, if 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 you found that you were struggling a bit a couple of months later, you probably you know to have that little bit of extra change in your pocket may have helped. Yeah. Something to chew on, perhaps. <laughs> we don't have to always donate to these things. I mean, it's it's a shame if we miss out on some of the goodies, but, uh, you know, life isn't always about getting uh, getting what we want. I'm sure he's happy he, he emailed it. <laughs> <laughs> 
but uh, Don and Gary got what they want, and they've uh, they were successful in uh, in in their campaign. So we've uh, we've got that to look forward to, haven't we? Mm-hmm. And another email. This is from Sukaina Green. Hello. Firstly, I must admit that Squiggly Magazine has always been on my peripherals, but over the last few weeks, I've discovered how bloody brilliant it is. I like the way this girl thinks. <laughs> I've loved listening to the podcasts. I'm rather envious of your extensive vocabularies. They've certainly piqued my interest in a lot of animation I've yet to watch, and it makes for fascinating listening while animating. Awesome stuff. Looking forward to the next podcast. I guess reading that one is just kind of patting ourselves on the back. um, (laughs) It's always nice to hear. But uh, what I would really like, maybe we could, because I tried to encourage this a couple of years ago, one of our more sort of popular segments i think with the public was a rant against um insufferable clients yeah based on a traumatic experience i had and uh i do love a good clients from hell story and we got a few of those in and a i think people were perhaps a little like cautious because they didn't maybe they were still working for people mm-hmm. but i think that there are, there are a lot of good stories like that out there i'd always love to hear more of those just just food for thought. It'd be nice to share with the animation community your woes, and I'm sure people would love to hear it as well. Mm-hmm. You could self-centre, change the names of people, change your own name. Yeah, it's, a, it's an easy enough thing to do, I think, to just sort of shift things around a little bit. But if you just want to if you want to tell us we're good or tell us we're horrible, we haven't forgotten you. So, Ben, if people want to get in touch with the podcast, how do they do it? Once more. You can get in touch with us via email. Ben at squiggly.co.uk, Steve at squiggly.co.uk, or on Twitter, at squiggly, and you can even message us on Facebook, facebook.com slash squigglymagazine. We have a 100% response rate, I'm told, by our back end. Marvellous. That means we're good. It certainly does. With an average three-hour response time. We'll try and work on that. We're, We're efficient, if nothing else. Ooh, if we respond faster, it'll turn on a badge. It's like a little game. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> Facebook and your shenanigans. Facebook Jesus has been Christ. doing my head in. We look at some of our posts <laughs> and it says, we've, we've got like thousands of people like us on Facebook. But we look at some of our posts and it says, 47 people reached. Would you like to promote this for money? <laughs> we'll just post it again the next day and it'll go to like a thousand people. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. You're just bastards. Then. <laughs> just arbitrarily <laughs> denying us outreach. Cheers. <laughs> So, yes, look forward to hearing from people in the next podcast, hopefully. So, until then, thanks muchly to Mike and Tim Rouch of Rouch Brothers Animation. Check out their work at rouchbrothers.com. You can see the StoryCorps films there, as well as at the official website, storycore.org. And you can follow Mike and Tim on Twitter, at Rouch Bros. You can follow me on Twitter, at Ben L. Mitchell, and Steve is at Mr. underscore S. underscore Henderson. Once again, at Squiggly and Squiggly.com for all the usual animation news, reviews, interviews, features, and so on. Recent coverage we've not yet brought up in this episode includes animator Nancy Beeman's perspectives on the new Academy voting regulations. Some very interesting stuff there. We have a new Lightbox video interview featuring Tom Moore of Cartoon Saloon, reflecting on the reception of Song of the Sea, as well as his involvement in Carlo Gibran's The Prophet. Nathan Wilkes gives some attention to this year's Oscar nominees in the VFX categories, and there's also an interview with Australian animator Elliot Cowan, who we'll hear more from on this very podcast in the near future. Also this Monday, February 1st, people in the Southwest may want to swing by Bring Your Own Animation here in Bristol, at which I'll be speaking, and it's a great local meetup for animators to get together, show off their work, get feedback, and watch some films, and that'll take place at 730 and you can find more information on the Squiggly events page and hope to see some of you there. Don't be shy. Until the next episode, happy animating. Happy animating.